One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Bears at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, November 20th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 49. Game Overview by Pappy. The highest total game on the slate is between two of the most run-oriented teams in football. The Falcons' backfield is a chopped-up timeshare. David Montgomery is set to reprise his workhorse role. Justin Fields is more fairly priced this week. None of the passing game options see any volume. These two teams are dead last in pressure rate. How Chicago will try to win. The 3-7 Bears come into Week 10 on the heels of a three-game losing streak, having lost five of their past six games. The final score hasn't reflected the progress the Bears have made on offense over the past six weeks. As DFS players, it's easy to think of the Bears as a resounding success, but as a coaching staff or owner, the results haven't been what you want. It's worth mentioning that discrepancy because the mood of the actual Bears players is likely very different from the sentiment currently felt about them in fantasy football. Regardless of their record, Matt, can I get a clue, Eberflus, got a clue, and the Bears' offense has evolved into what resembles the early Lamar Jackson Ravens. The Bears' coaching staff deserves a lot of credit for making an excellent midseason adjustment, although it begs the question, why weren't they using Justin Fields as a hybrid QB running back before? Whatever the answer, the Bears' offense has put up 33, 29, 32, and 30, averaging 31 points over their past four games. For perspective, the Chiefs are number one in the league in scoring and average 30 points a game. Chicago plays slow, 24th in overall pace, but plays noticeably quicker, 14th in situation neutral pace, when the game is close. The Bears' overall pace number is dragged down by their willingness to plod, 28th in pace, if they have the lead. The rest of their pace numbers are more neutral than slow, and although they'll never be confused with the Chargers, the Bears are playing fast enough that their pace doesn't drag down a game environment unless they have a large lead. The Bears have turned the corner on offense, but their defense wasn't good before and is now horrific after trading away two of their better defensive players, Robert Quinn and Roquan Smith, which makes it unlikely that Chicago takes a big lead in this game. The Falcons have been whipped through the air, 29th in DVOA, and stomped on the ground, 25th in DVOA. The Falcons' defense has been a sieve all year, only holding the banged-up Chargers below 25 in their last five games. Dean Pease uses a unique defensive system that runs a 3-4 base but is frequently lined up in exotic fronts without many down linemen. The results have been an inability to stop the run based on scheme and an inability to stop the pass based on poor personnel combined with a lack of pressure. They are dead last in pressure rate. The Bears have been explosive, but they are limiting field's pass attempts, third highest rush rate, and their offensive line is much better at run blocking, 14th in adjusted line yards, than pass blocking dead last in adjusted sack rate, providing more incentive to run the damn ball. There is every reason to think the Bears will stick with their run-heavy approach, using Fields as a dual-threat runner and passer. How Atlanta will try to win The 4-6 Falcons come into the week riding a two-game losing streak after briefly sitting atop the worst division in football. The Falcons have been exposed as pretenders with little chance to make the playoffs, but they are still technically only a game out of first in the woeful NFC South. Tampa also holds a tiebreaker. This game kicks off what feels like a winnable stretch of their schedule, Chicago, Washington, Pittsburgh, and New Orleans, with the Falcons needing victories to keep their season alive. Arthur Smith is old school in his approach to football, 
but he's experienced enough to know that his team has hope in a weak division and the season hinges on their record over the next four winnable games. The Falcons play slow, 29th in overall pace, and never speed up, continuing to crawl, 26th in pace when trailing, even if the scoreboard is lopsided. They are one of the slowest teams in close games as well, 29th in situation neutral pace, trailing only the Titans, Packers, and Commanders. The Falcons' deliberate pace is in line with the outdated approach Arthur Smith has on offense. He wants to run the ball, chew the clock, and hope things break his way in the fourth quarter. It's possible the Falcons are playing 90s football because of their limitations at QB, but based on Smith's background, he was a guard when he played and then a line and tight end coach, but it's more likely this is just his offensive philosophy. The Bears have been demolished through the air, 30th in DVOA, and roughed up on the ground, 26th in DVOA. Arthur Smith uses an obsolete attack, but at least he is good at what he does, as the Falcons' O-line has outperformed expectations this season, ranked 11th by PFF, especially in the running game, ranked 3rd in adjusted line yards. They don't hold up as well in pass protection, 30th in adjusted sack rate, but the Bears generate the second least pressure in the league, only ahead of these Falcons, making it unlikely they can take advantage of the Falcons' leaky pass blocking. The Falcons won't be tempting fate much anyway, as they will assuredly try and attack the Bears' weak run defense with their strong running game before turning to the pass. Expect the Falcons to ground and pound the Bears into submission for as long as the score is close, with the possibility they stay run heavy even if the Bears take a two-score lead. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a robust total, 49.5, that was bet up slightly early, to 50, before coming back down to 49.5 midweek. This contest currently has the highest total on the slate, two points higher than Dallas-Minnesota, and only one other game, Detroit and the Giants, is within five points. It's lofty expectations for a game being played between two of the most run-heavy teams in football, but it makes sense since both defenses have been trampled on the ground and are totally unable to generate pressure on the opposing QB. The Falcons are three-point home favorites, with over 60% of the bets, according to sportsbookreview.com, coming in on Chicago to start the week, which illustrates the positive public sentiment around the Bears despite their offensive success not translating to wins. If this game starts to show reverse line movement, it'll be a strong indication the Falcons are likely to do well, as the books are trying to take advantage of the Bears being overrated right now by the public. The most likely game flow has both teams running the ball well, leading to a lot of long drives that end in success. This game should stay close into the fourth quarter, with the winner being determined by something like a late fumble. Panthers at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, November 20th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41. Game Overview by Hilo. Three defensive starters missed practice on Wednesday for the Panthers, who also have the dreaded flu sweeping through their locker room. Quarterback P.J. Walker also missed Wednesday's practice with an ankle injury. Mark Andrews was initially reported to have missed practice on Wednesday, but it has since been changed to a limited session as he works his way back from a couple of lost games due to various injuries. The Ravens are pretty easy to break down. Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews, and then everyone else, including four players likely to be involved in the backfield, and no pass catcher outside of Andrews, a lock to see more than 60-70% to 70% of the offensive snaps. How Carolina will try to win. First of all, I don't necessarily think it's right to say the Panthers are trying to win games, as it's much more pertinent to say the Panthers are trying to figure out what they have that can pair well with future top picks in the NFL draft, for the next three to five years. 
the revolving door at quarterback indicates they haven't yet found that piece at that position. They recently dealt away Christian McCaffrey, so they're running a combination of Donta Foreman, Chuba Hubbard, and Raheem Blackshear in the backfield, and their pass-catching core consists of DJ Moore and four youngsters in Terrace Marshall, Shai Smith, LaVisca Chenault, and tight end Tommy Tremble. Basically, they have some pieces they like up front on defense, have a great secondary, and not much of anything else. The rest of the season is likely their litmus test for what fits moving forward. Carolina has been forced into the ninth fastest pace of play in the second half this season through routinely negative game scripts, but would prefer to keep things slow and on the ground. Their 28th ranked pass rate over expectation value indicates that even their modest 54.84% overall pass rate might be higher than they would otherwise like, which isn't likely to change much against the Ravens an opponent that should control the game environment with their defense and ground attack. That puts a relative ceiling on the number of total offensive plays expected from this game environment and a cap on most of the offensive skill position players on the Panthers as well. Christian McCaffrey was dealt following the team's Week 6 game, leaving Foreman, Hubbard, and Blackshear to handle backfield duties over the previous four games. Hubbard missed two of those games, which provided the opportunity for Foreman to stamp his mark as the clear lead rusher, which he has yet to relinquish. That said, Foreman's utilization has proven to be entirely tied to game flow, as he played 68% of the offensive snaps in the overtime loss to the Falcons in Week 8, and in the 25-15 win over the same Falcons in Week 10, but dipped to 43% in a blowout loss to the Bengals in Week 9, and started the post-CMC stretch with a 54% snap rate in the surprise drubbing of the Buccaneers. The Panthers want to see what they have in Chuba Hubbard and Raheem Blackshear in blowouts in either direction, while riding their best rusher and foreman in games that remain close. The small sample size alert is in full effect with that analysis, but that's what makes the most sense to me considering the current state of the team. As such, it is foolish to immediately pencil foreman in for 65-70% to 70% of the offensive snaps and backfield opportunities in a game they are currently listed as 13-point underdogs. The pure rushing matchup yields an above-average 4.615 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Baltimore defense that has lost its top two nose tackles that started last season, lost longtime staple Brandon Williams via release, and lost Michael Pierce to season-ending injury early in the season. The Panthers' pass offense is relatively concentrated amongst its top two wide receivers in DJ Moore and Terrace Marshall, with Shai Smith and LaVisca Chenault splitting the remaining wide receiver three role and pass-catching youngster tight end Tommy Tremble splitting time with blocking tight end Ian Thomas. The Panthers' utilization of 21 personnel has been all over the map this season, with fullback Giovanni Ricci seeing everything from 9% of offensive snaps to 51% of the offensive snaps earlier in the season. That leaves a lot of uncertainty behind Moore and Marshall regarding the snap rate expectation of the secondary pass catchers in this offense, not to mention the poor play from the quarterback position for the duration of the season. In all, your guess is as good as mine as far as what to expect behind the top two and even the top two aren't locks to see consistent usage or volume. One thing is for certain, all players on this pass offense are highly unlikely to burn you for not playing them. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens have progressively devolved back into a run-heavy team as the season has moved along, ranking near the middle of the league in pass rate over expectation, and checking in all the way down at 27th in overall pass rate including a vintage Ravens 42.08% pass rate over the previous three games. That drastic shift in offensive philosophy has coincided with a defense regaining its health, the injury to Mark Andrews, and the return to the lineup of Gus Edwards. 
the Ravens almost universally begin games with a high rush rate and slow pace of play, ranking 31st in the league in first half pace of play and 31st in overall pace of play. Expect more of the same here, but the only outside force likely to push the Ravens into increased pace or aerial aggression being the Panthers' offense, which ranks as the least efficient offense in the league. In the three games since J.K. Dobbins went on injured reserve, Kenyon Drake, Justice Hill, and Gus Edwards, when healthy, have split the backfield duties, with Drake running as the lead rusher, Hill utilized in most scenarios alongside Drake, and Edwards reserved for early down work, short yardage situations, and goal line work. Edwards missed the Ravens' Week 9 game before their bye, so he's had two-plus weeks to rest and rehab the hamstring injury that has bothered him since Week 8, making it likely he sees a return to action this week, and he was limited in practice on Wednesday. That, when combined with the expectation of 9-12 to 12 carries from quarterback Lamar Jackson, leaves oodles of uncertainty regarding expected workload and ranges of outcomes from this backfield. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.315 net adjusted line yards metric against the Panthers' defense seeding 27.2 DK points per game to opposing backfields, inflated by the 13 total touchdowns allowed to the position thus far. Lamar Jackson has passed for more than two touchdowns in a game only twice all season. It just so happens that in each of those games, he wrecked the slate, rushing for 100-plus yards and a touchdown in each instance. As such, and as we've discussed so frequently around the site over the previous two seasons, the optimal way to play Jackson is paired with exactly one pass catcher. I digress. I bring that up because of the spread nature of the Ravens' offense behind Mark Andrews, who is attempting to make his return from two lost games due to multiple injuries. For example, and to highlight how spread the offense is behind Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews, fullback Patrick Richard has played the second most snaps of all Ravens skill position players this season, 18 more than Devin Duvernay, 88 more than Demarcus Robinson, and 150 more than each of Josh Oliver and Isaiah Likely. Duvernay and Robinson typically find themselves in the 50-60% to snap rate range on an offense that utilizes heavy personnel sets at the highest rate in the league. James Prochet and either Tylen Wallace or Deshaun Jackson are likely to play situational roles at best. The Panthers rank dead last in net drive success rate, primarily influenced by their league-worst marks on offense, which should provide the Ravens with additional offensive plays here, but the expected volume is spread ridiculously thin behind Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews. Devin DuVernay is the type of player that can score from anywhere on the field at any point, but should be reserved for Baltimore passing stacks alone. Likeliest Game Flow The Ravens are highly likely to be able to run a game plan that suits their strengths and desires here, playing a Panthers team that ranks dead last in offensive efficiency that pairs with a middle-of-the-road defense to form the worst net drive success rate in the league. That is likely to provide the Ravens with a slight boost to their offensive plays run from scrimmage expectation, which is all but useless from a GPP perspective for anyone outside of the aforementioned two players. As in, even if the Ravens score four or more touchdowns, playing Ravens players is simply saying Lamar Jackson is involved in all four scores and multiple of them flow to Mark Andrews. As for the Panthers, the questions at quarterback, injury to P.J. Walker and his recent benching at half in Week 9, and highly inefficient offense leave them with very few paths to both fantasy relevance and to pushing the Ravens. Basically, this game environment has very few paths to eruption, leaving any fantasy interest squarely in the Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews or bust realm. Browns at Bills 
kickoff Sunday, November 20th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 49.5. The NFL is monitoring the heavy snowfall expected in Buffalo and is considering moving this game. The edge write-up will be delayed as we wait on this news. Commanders at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, November 20th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41. Game Overview by Hilo. Taylor Heineke will continue to start this week, with Carson Wentz not yet ready to come off of injured reserve. J.D. McKissick failed to practice Wednesday after two missed contests with his neck injury, typically not a good signal for a player coming off missed games. Brandon Cooks returned from a one-game absence due to a wrist injury in Week 10, immediately picked up an additional hip injury, and failed to practice Wednesday. Pass game volume and concentration is almost non-existent here. How Washington will try to win. The Commanders have maintained a slow pace of play, 30th-ranked situation neutral pace of play, and 22nd-ranked first-half pace of play. A bottom 10 pass rate over expectation value and moderate 57.21% overall pass play rate as they attempt to tread water in the NFC. Their current 5-5 record has them just a half game back of the 49ers for the final playoff spot out of the NFC, which is a borderline miracle considering they've played half the season with a backup quarterback and have fought through countless injuries to primary players this year. The team is coming off a shocking upset of the then-undefeated Eagles on Monday night, a game that saw them run the football a massive 49 total times. They also played the now 8-1 Vikings to a close game throughout on the backs of 30 total rush attempts, beat the Packers four weeks ago behind 38 rush attempts, and beat the Colts three weeks ago in a game that entered the fourth quarter 7-6. Basically, those four games highlight how this team is trying to win games with Tyler Heineke at the helm who has held a tight range of pass attempts between 28 and 33 in his four starts, good for a 3-1 record. Now matched up against the team ranking worst in the league in most major defensive rushing metrics, and it becomes clear how this team is likeliest to try and win here. Antonio Gibson has played 77 total offensive snaps in the two games without J.D. McKissick, while rookie Brian Robinson has played 71 total offensive snaps. Robinson leads the way in total running back opportunities during that span with 40 versus 31 for Gibson. The point here is that the two have combined for an insane 71 running back opportunities over the last two games and now get the distinct pleasure of facing the worst rush defense in the league. Robinson continues to be the preferred grinder option of this backfield, even while struggling to a 3.28 yard per carry mark this season. It's honestly difficult to put into words just how poorly he has looked on film, yet the team continues to employ him as their top option on the ground. To be fair, Gibson hasn't performed much better with just a 3.61 yards per carry mark this season, but he has looked the better back to the trained eye this season. As alluded to previously, the matchup on the ground is a good one, yielding an above average 4.57 net adjusted line yards metric, against a Houston defense allowing a massive 34.0 DK points per game to opposing backfields, 14 total touchdowns allowed through nine games. The problem is, we quite simply can't expect either back to separate from the other as far as expected efficiency goes. Rookie wide receiver Jahan Dotson returned from a five-game absence to force a maddening snap rate dispersal amongst primary Washington pass catchers, with only Terry McLaurin and Logan Thomas seeing more than 64% of the offensive snaps a week ago. It is likeliest we see Dotson's snap rate increase a bit here, 
but unlikely that it makes much difference in the overall state of the pass game. As in, all of McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Dotson, Cam Sims, Deami Brown, Dax Milne, Thomas, John Bates, and blocking tight end Armani Rogers are likely to see some run moving forward, which creates a gross expectation of volume considering backup quarterback Tyler Heineke has finished between 28 and 33 pass attempts in each of his four starts. Good luck finding volume from this unit outside of McLaurin. And even then, he holds just a 20.2% targets per route run rate, has gone over 100 yards just three times, and has scored only two touchdowns this season. The okay news is that McLaurin has caught the eye of Heineke, seeing eight or more targets in each of his starts, a mark he hit in only two of six games with Wentz as the signal caller. How Houston will try to win. I'm honestly not entirely sure what the hell is going on in Houston this season. As all signs point to a tank job, yet this team just claimed former Cardinals running back Eno Benjamin off of waivers, earning a high waiver spot in the process. Apparently, Eno had four total claims put on him. The only thing that makes sense to me is that the franchise viewed Eno as a potential piece of the future, which checks out with the feeling that the team is in full evaluation mode for the remainder of the season. Everyone from quarterback Davis Mills to rookie running back Damian Pierce to wide receivers Nico Collins, Philip Dorsett, Chris Moore, and Tyron Johnson to tight ends O.J. Howard, Brevin Jordan, Jordan Akins, and Tegan Quitoriano appear to be playing for future consideration in this franchise. Only Brandon Cook should be considered an above-average NFL talent, albeit with a known and very public disdain for being kept at the trade deadline. In all, we should expect moderate to slow pace of play. Elevated rush rates, their 12th lowest pass rate over expectation, masks the above average 60.65% pass rate, and a 4-3 zone-based defense designed to limit splash plays through the air. As mentioned before, the team appears to be in full evaluation mode with respect to their backfield, amongst other positions. Rookie Damian Pierce took over as the lead back in Week 2 and has yet to relinquish the role overperforming a weak run-blocking offensive line to the tune of a 4.68 yards per carry mark this season. Furthermore, his pass game usage has been relatively stable over the previous six weeks of play, with five of those six games yielding three to six targets. It's foolish to expect Eno Benjamin to come in and see elevated usage in his first game with the team, making it highly likely Pierce maintains a 70-80% to 80% snap rate and opportunity rate this week. The biggest knock in a matchup against a Washington defense ranked second in DVOA and holding opposing backfields to 4.16 yards per carry this season, which, when combined with a poor run-blocking Houston offensive line, yields a modest 4.245 net-adjusted line yards metric. Good luck finding any semblance of certainty in this pass game moving forward. With all of Brandon Cooks, Nico Collins, Chris Moore, Philip Dorsett, O.J. Howard, Jordan Akins, and Tegan Quitoriano, playing between 42 and 78% of the offensive snaps a week ago. The matchup clearly shows a path of least resistance through the air against the Commanders. We just can't fully expect the Texans to attack in that way until forced to do so. And since the Commanders aren't a team to fully push their opposition, instead focusing on grinding out games on their journey through mediocrity, we can't expect the Texans to lean into the pass game until very late in the contest. Finally, quarterback Davis Mills has not thrown for more than two touchdowns in a game this season and has just two games over his last five with more than a modest 29 pass attempts. Likeliest Game Flow This game checks in with a modest 41 game total, which Vegas has completely right by the looks of it. 
Each offense should play slow and should focus their offensive attention on the ground games. The Commanders have been so atrociously bad on the ground, but find themselves in the best on-paper matchup in the league. While the Texans have overperformed expectations on the ground this year, but find themselves up against the second-ranked run defense by DVOA. That is likeliest to make this game environment ripe with disappointment, as each team likely pounds their backs into brick walls. Yeah, Washington's offensive line is basically a brick wall itself, while the Commanders have been stout against the run defensively. Furthermore, each of these pass offenses have been both low volume and extremely spread out, with no less than seven primary pass catchers seeing significant playing time over the previous month of play from each unit. Basically, there isn't much to like from a fantasy perspective here. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Eagles at the Colts kick off Sunday, November 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.0. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Philadelphia's offense is in a bit of a tough spot, playing shorthanded on a short week against a good defense. Indianapolis will want to run the ball to control the clock, protect Matt Ryan, and attack Philadelphia's weakness. Both teams play at a relatively fast tempo, but focusing on the running game will likely keep the clock moving and limit play volume. This game has two likely paths, either a low-scoring competitive game or a game that Philly controls and dominates. How Philadelphia will try to win The Eagles' offense had their worst showing of the season on Monday night against the Commanders, as they scored only seven points in the last three quarters, had the least total yards they've had this season, and managed only 47 offensive plays, which was by far their lowest total of the year. The context of a second divisional game against a solid and improving Washington defense must be considered, however, as the Commanders were prepared and made adjustments from their first matchup. Perhaps the biggest concerns for the Eagles this week will be playing a road game on a short week and losing a key offensive piece with Dallas Goddard being placed on IR. The Colts also have a relatively strong defense that excels against the run and has two or more sacks in eight of their ten games this season. The Commander's defense laid a blueprint last week, which many teams will try to emulate going forward. Part of that blueprint was a zone-heavy scheme that featured heavier boxes to help against the run then dropped a lot of players into coverage. This strategy helped to contain the scrambling of Jalen Hurts, while also keeping the running game in check and allowing Washington to make plays and limit yards after the catch for Eagles receivers. The Colts play zone coverage at the sixth highest rate in the league and have a top five run defense, so they are already set up well to execute a similar game plan to the commanders. Keep in mind that this Colts defense held the highest scoring offense in the league, Kansas City, to 17 points in week three. Losing Goddard to injury leaves a big hole for the Eagles, as his replacements are significantly less talented and athletic. I would expect the Eagles to get their other receivers more involved and spread things out a bit to create running lanes. I would also expect a lot of crossing patterns, hitches, curls, and or screens for Devonta Smith and A.J. Brown in this matchup, as they should clearly be prioritized in the passing game. As for the running game, Jalen Hurts has scaled back the running significantly in recent weeks. After averaging nearly 13 carries per game in the first six games, Hertz has averaged less than six carries per game in the three games since the Eagles' bye week. 
Now that the Eagles have lost a game and lost a key offensive weapon, it would not be surprising to see Hertz start running the ball more often again. How Indianapolis will try to win This one should be pretty straightforward. The Colts relied heavily on Jonathan Taylor last week as he played nearly every offensive snap and was the focal point of the offense as he looked fully healthy for the first time since week four. This week, the Colts face an Eagles team that has been dominant against the pass while struggling against the run this season. New head coach Jeff Saturday, an offensive lineman in his playing days, is almost certain to lean heavily on Taylor once again this week and try to keep this game close and in control as deep into it as they can. They will copy the blueprint laid out by the Commanders on Monday night as they chip away at the Eagles on the ground and rely on their defense to keep them in contention and force mistakes from Philadelphia. The Colts returned the keys to the team to Matt Ryan last week after a failed two-week experiment with Sam Ellinger. Ryan performed well in his return, but is literally going from the best possible matchup against the Raiders, 32nd-ranked pass defense, to the worst possible matchup against the Eagles' top-ranked pass defense. The Eagles rank third in PFF pass rush grade and third in sacks per game, while the Colts' offensive line ranks 29th in PFF pass blocking grade and has given up the most sacks in the league. Short, quick passes will be necessary for this matchup as a means to protect Ryan, who is nowhere near agile enough in the pocket to avoid the constant pressure the Eagles are likely to provide. I would expect most of Ryan's targets to be of the short area variety towards Paris Campbell and Kylan Granson, or hitches and short crossing patterns to alpha wide receiver Michael Pittman, who is likely to see a lot of stud cornerback Darius Slay in this matchup. Likeliest Game Flow The Eagles' offense is unlikely to go nuts in this game, as despite their strong season and positive public perception, they have scored over 30 points only twice this year, both times against poor defenses that were struggling at the time. It is also a bit of a hit to their expectations that the Colts are so stout in the area that the Eagles rely on to sustain their offense. On the other side of the ball, the likelihood of a conservative Colts approach and difficulty sustaining drives also makes it likely that the Eagles are not pushed very hard, and that this turns into a field position game with lots of punts and tough decisions on long field goals or fourth down attempts. The combination of these factors all points to a relatively subdued game environment, with a chance of the Eagles just dominating this game early and taking their foot off the gas late due to a lack of threat of a comeback from their opponent. The biggest factors in the Eagles' favor in this game are the greater chance for mistakes and turnovers from the Colts' offense, and the more efficient red zone scoring of the Eagles' offense. Philadelphia ranks third in the league in red zone touchdown percentage, while Indianapolis ranks 30th. What this tells us is that even when the Colts are able to get some drives into scoring range, they will likely struggle to convert those drives into points, while the Eagles can have similar offensive performance with a higher scoring expectation. The Jets at the Patriots kick off Sunday, November 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 38.0. Game Overview by Hilo Not a ton of moving pieces on the Patriots injury report, which is saying something considering Bill Belichick's free utilization of the term questionable. Jets nose tackle Sheldon Rankins and wide receiver Corey Davis were the big names to miss practice on Wednesday, each of whom has been a key contributor to this team when healthy. Mac Jones and Zach Wilson are the bottom two quarterbacks in the league when under pressure this season, which spells trouble for each of these teams as the Patriots are now number one in pressure rate, while the Jets still sit fourth overall. 
The eventual game environment contains a tight range of outcomes, with the game likeliest to be dictated by each respective defense. The Jets have shown the ability and propensity to pick up the pace and pass rates when required this season, but the team clearly does not want Zach Wilson chucking the ball around unless there are no other options. How New York will try to win New York's game plan this season has started with their defense and has attempted to hide a quarterback not yet fully ready for the NFL game. Zach Wilson's pass attempts have swung wildly as the starter this season, ranging from 18 to 41 attempts. Wilson has thrown multiple picks, five total between two games, in each of the two games in which he attempted 36 passes or more this season and has been one of the worst quarterbacks in the league when under pressure over his short career. Not a great trait to have against the defense generating the highest rate of pressure in the backfield this season. Knowing head coach Robert Salo and offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur to be one of the new age, forward-leaning variety, we should expect the Jets to tailor their game plan to their opponent here. That is likeliest to lead to increased rush rates while within striking distance, more emphasis on 12 personnel, and routes designed to counterbalance the increased blitz rates exhibited by the Patriots thus far. I would expect increased utilization of screens, pre-snap motions, and quick hits as the team fights through those heavy blitz rates. While the Patriots now hold the league's highest rate of pressure in the backfield, they've had to achieve it through an elevated rate of unique blitz packages designed to trick and bait quarterbacks into mistakes. This should all lead to a relatively conservative offensive approach throughout the first half, while the ultimate approach to end the game is highly likely to be driven by the game flow. The Jets started incorporating recent signee James Robinson more their last time out, who managed 15 running back opportunities on a solid for an RB2 40% snap rate. The Jets clearly don't want Michael Carter playing anything more than a 1A role, as they have held him to 61% or fewer of the offensive snaps in every game this season, outside the game where Brees Hall got injured. A standard expectation for the split in usage for the two is likeliest to leave Carter in the 14-16 running back opportunity range, and Robinson in the 12-14 running back opportunity range, with a likely increased emphasis on utilizing the two through the air. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above-average 4.45 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Patriots defense holding opposing backfields to just 17.7 DK points per game this season, second-fewest only to the 49ers. The absence of Corey Davis and the presence of Elijah Moore on the coaching staff's poo-poo caca list has left the primary pass catchers as rookie-wide receiver Garrett Wilson perennially failed experiment Denzel Mims, and tight end Tyler Conklin, leaving more slot man turned gadget man Braxton Berrios, Jeff Smith, and blocking tight end CJ Uzoma to fight for the leftovers. Wilson has been a revelation for these Jets this season, ranking 19th in the league in targets per route run rate at a healthy 27.5%. Wilson also has been moved around the formation and is the player likeliest to see an increased rate of scheme touches against the blitz-heavy Patriots, which serves to elevate his expected volume here, somewhat required on a modest 8.5 dot and a weak 64.2 average air yards per game. 
In all likelihood, the players who are likeliest to benefit the most from increased pass game involvement are the running backs, particularly when you consider the Jets already target the position at the seventh highest rate and now find themselves playing the defense generating the most pressure in the backfield this season. The problem, at least for fantasy purposes, is twofold. The backfield is expected to be a tight split amongst Michael Carter and James Robinson, and any upside from the pass game is likeliest to come through the highly variant acts of busted plays and touchdowns. How New England Will Try to Win The Patriots have done what they can to shorten games this season, playing at a slow pace of play when it is up to them, 25th ranked first half pace of play and 28th ranked pace of play with the score within six points, with a pass rate over expectation near league average and an overall pass rate sitting at just 52.65%, 25th in the league. In true Belichickian fashion, their defense has held opponents to the second fewest opposition points per drive, the second lowest opponent drive success rate, and the sixth fewest yards per drive allowed all of which helps to explain an overall 8th-ranked net points per drive value, even with the team scoring a middle-of-the-pack 22.6 points per game. The message and the game plan are clear. New England wants their offense to not lose the game, while their defense keeps them in the driver's seat. Another highlight of this fact is their third-ranked 1.9 takeaways per game, which ranks behind only the Eagles and, surprisingly, the Vikings. The biggest blemish to the offense is 1.9 giveaways per game value, 14 of which have come between the two starting quarterbacks to see significant run this season in Mac Jones, seven interceptions and one fumble lost, and Bailey Zapp, three interceptions and three fumbles lost. As in, 14 of their 17 giveaways through nine games played have come via their quarterback position. This helps to explain the rather handcuffed approach to offensive game calling displayed this season, albeit with incumbent and presumed starter Mac Jones having thrown between 30 and 35 passes in every start that he finished, five of nine games, including the final two games before their Week 10 bye. Furthermore, although the Patriots rank below league average with just 60.8 offensive plays run per game, the 66.4 they average in the five games with Mac Jones at quarterback for the duration of the game would rank tied for sixth in the league with the Kansas City Chiefs, if extrapolated to the entire season. Yeah, extrapolation is the devil, but the point remains. Damian Harris missed the Patriots' Week 9 contest with an illness, but has had two full weeks to recover and was not even listed on the injury report to start the week. He hasn't been near full health in over five weeks, meaning his most recent snap count should be considered a bit misleading. Before he was injured and then ill, and without Ty Montgomery in the lineup, who was ruled out for the remainder of the season on Wednesday after undergoing surgery to address a shoulder injury, a typical game saw Harris in the 35-45% to 45% snap rate range as he played behind Ramondre Stevenson. The most tilting thing about this backfield with each primary RB healthy is the lower expected opportunity share and minimal pass usage for Harris, a role that also came with primary short yardage and goal line duties, offsetting the increased snap rate, opportunity share, and pass game usage of Stevenson. Assuming Harris is ready to return to his pre-injury and illness role, which is highly likely, we should expect something similar this week against the Jets. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.26 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Jets defense holding opposing backfields to a below-average 21.6 fantasy points per game, albeit while facing the 8th most targets to the position. 
All told, the heavy rush rates demonstrated by this team in neutral to positive game scripts should allow 30 to 34 combined running back opportunities, likely somewhere split in the 60-40% or 65-35% range. The passing game this season has run primarily through Jacoby Myers, who holds solid marks in targets per route run rate, 27.6%, and a team target market share, 24.8%, but has been working to a modest 9.4 ADOT, 69th, and has seen only four total red zone targets on the season. Devontae Parker is the only other New England pass catcher to see a game of double-digit targets, of which Myers has seen two, 13 targets in each instance. Parker returned to a limited session on Wednesday as he works his way back from a knee injury that forced him to miss Week 9's contest prior to the bye, meaning it is likely we see a return to action this week. That should signal a return to a more tightly bunched distribution of snaps amongst Myers, Parker, and rookie Tyquan Thornton on an offense that has strangely utilized 11 personnel as their preferred personnel alignment this season. I say strangely because this team has utilized almost zero 21 personnel and below average rates of 12 personnel when it appeared the players on the roster facilitated those alignments coming into the season. It would also seem that the matchup with one of the league's top secondaries behind a 4-3 heavy zone defense would lend itself to increased rates of 12 personnel utilization, but that remains to be seen as the Patriots come out of their bye week. In all, there isn't a ton of upside to come from this pass game from either a macro matchup perspective or a guaranteed utilization perspective this week. Likeliest Game Flow This game is likely to be defined by the defenses, each of which ranks in the top four in the league in pressure rates. Patriot ranks first, while Jets rank fourth. Mac Jones and Zach Wilson are the bottom two quarterbacks in PFF rating when under pressure this season, by a wide margin. Each has thrown only one touchdown versus five interceptions when under pressure, while Zach Wilson has a disgustingly low 21.2% completion rate when under pressure. Yeah, it's bad, bad. The thing here is that each coaching staff knows these values, and we can all but guarantee each will be looking to relentlessly attack the opposing quarterback, which is likeliest to manifest itself into increased rush rates from each offense, and design plays to counterbalance the expected pressure rates from the opposition. That is likeliest to lead to increased running back pass game participation, screens, and quick outs and crossing routes for the Jets against the elevated blitz rates of the Patriots. While there isn't a ton of certainty in how the Patriots are likeliest to alter their offensive game plan coming out of their bye, the clearest angle they would take, considering their offensive personnel and the opponent, would be to increase their usage of 12 personnel heavy sets in an attempt to hide Mac Jones and provide him with easier completions. But again, it remains to be seen how they choose to attack here. That entire discussion puts a rather tight clamp on the expected game environment here, making such a massive portion of the range of outcomes likeliest to be dictated by each respective defense. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Rams at the Saints. Kick off Sunday, November 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 39.0. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Expect a very slow-paced game between two teams with quarterback and weapons issues. Two previous high-powered offenses are now among the slowest pace and least aggressive teams in the league. 
there is some uncertainty for both teams regarding who their starting quarterback will be this week. Scoring will be at a premium this week with a first 1-20 to wins feel to this game. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Rams have one of the worst running games in the league, and their offensive line might struggle in the Pac-12. They also just lost all-world wide receiver Cooper Cup for at least four weeks to a high ankle sprain. Matthew Stafford may be able to return this week from his concussion, but even if he does return, there is only so much you can do with no running game, blocking, or explosive weapons. Very dark times for the defending Super Bowl champs. The thing about the Rams' offense that many people don't understand is that it is built around the running game. Sean McVay is a very good offensive mind who comes from the Shanahan coaching tree. The concepts within the offense rely on a consistent and occasionally explosive running game, which opens things up via play action, misdirection, and shot plays. The inability of the Rams' offensive line to effectively open up holes, coupled with the revolving door of running backs who are middling talents at best, has left the Rams in a situation where they can't run the ball with any sort of sustained success. That reality has left them up a creek without a paddle as their passing game concepts don't fool any defenses or create advantages without a real threat from the running game. Their one trump card has been Cooper Cup's ability to sustain the offense at varying levels of the field. Now that they don't have Cup, it is hard to see the Rams moving the ball well at all for the foreseeable future unless they get some very easy matchups, which this week is not. The Rams, who run primarily 11 personnel, three wide receiver, one tight end, one running back, will have Allen Robinson, Van Jefferson, and Ben Skoranek on the field for virtually every play. As opposed to the concentrated approach the Rams use when they have cup, the passing game usage should be spread out relatively even between those three and Tyler Higby, with a couple of running back targets sprinkled in. The Rams may try to establish the run a bit more without Cup, but the game plan will likely be some form of conservative, slow-paced approach and try to win a low-scoring game on the back of their defense. If Stafford plays, they may look to take a couple more shot plays downfield to Robinson and Jefferson. How New Orleans will try to win The Saints have lost four of their last five games with their only victory coming in a 24-0 pounding of the lowly Raiders. Andy Dalton has started seven games this season since Jameis Winston was hurt, but Winston is now healthy, and the recent struggles of this Saints offense may lead to them going back to Winston, either as the starter or in the middle of a game at some point soon. This uncertainty at the most important position, along with a lack of consistent playmakers, has kept this offense in check for most of the year, and this week's matchup with a solid Rams defense will be no pushover. The Saints' defense has struggled at times this season, but that has mostly been in matchups against talented and high-scoring offenses, which the Rams are not. The Saints rank 27th in situation neutral pace of play and 26th in pass rate over expectation, as their approach has mostly been to keep games lower scoring and rely on their defense and running game to give them a chance. This week's matchup will provide some issues for the Saints in that regard, as the Rams' run defense ranks top 5 in both DVOA and yards per carry allowed. In the passing game, the Rams drop into zone coverage at the highest rate in the league and rank 31st in pressure rate. 
From a strategic perspective, this means that when the Saints do pass the ball, they should have time in the pocket, but are unlikely to find many openings down the field. The way this game sets up for the Saints' offense, we should expect a higher pass rate than normal, but most of the targets to be within a few yards of the line of scrimmage, with Alvin Kamara, Jarvis Landry, and Jawan Johnson likely to be heavily involved in that area. If Jameis Winston does get into the game this week, the Saints may take some more shots downfield, but that might not be in their best interest. Given the tendency of the Rams' defense to funnel targets to the short areas and take away big plays, Dalton seems like the wiser choice for at least one more week. Likeliest Game Flow There are several factors and tea leaves that we can look to that point us in the direction this game is likeliest to go. Obviously, this game has a very low total, but we can dig deeper than that to see how this game is likely to play out. The Rams have scored over 20 points on only two occasions this season, Week 2 against the Falcons, when the Rams had three extra days to prepare after playing Thursday night in Week 1, and Week 6 against the Panthers, who were traveling across the country to play five days after their coach was fired. Both the Falcons' and Panthers' defenses also rank 25th or worse in DVOA. Basically, the Rams have been completely unable to create scoring unless they were playing a bottom-tier defense and had some other tactical advantage. This brings us to the Saints, who have been able to put up a decent amount of points in some spots this season, but almost all of those instances have been in games where the other team was also scoring points. In five games this season, the Saints have scored over 24 points. In those games, their opponents averaged 31.6 points per game and never scored less than 26. In five games where the Saints scored 24 points or less, their opponents averaged 17.8 points per game and never scored more than 27. Putting all of those points together, we can see that the Saints are more of a thermometer team rather than a thermostat team. What I mean by that is that they are capable of high-scoring games but must be pushed into them. The Rams' offense ranks 27th in the league in DVOA, has a bottom three offensive line, just lost its best offensive player, they may be without their starting quarterback, and they are playing on the road against a solid defense. Basically, it's really hard to see the Rams scoring 20 points here. Given what we know about the Saints' tendencies, if the Rams are failing to score over 20 points, likely, then the Saints are likely getting into the low 20s at best. Both defenses are solid, and these teams rank 27th and 28th in the league in situation-neutral pace of play. Since neither team is likely to go on a scoring binge that forces a significant negative game script for the other, it is hard to see many paths to this game turning up, outside of turnovers leading to defensive touchdowns. The Lions at the Giants kick off Sunday, November 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.0. Game Overview by Hilo. Wide receivers Josh Reynolds and Trinity Benson missed practice to start the week for the Lions, while running back Jamal Williams missed practice with the same illness sweeping the league. Daniel Bellinger continued to miss practice with his orbital bone injury near his eye. He has not played the last two New York games in addition to the team's bye week in Week 9. This game likely carries a much smaller chance at a shootout than the field is likely to realize, considering the game logs the Lions have put up this season. Things have changed fairly dramatically for the Lions over the previous three weeks. 
Each team ranks poorly in most run-stopping metrics, but the Giants have completely clamped down in the red zone under the guidance of Wink Martindale. How Detroit will try to win The Lions continue to be a team in complete disarray, primarily due to the numerous injuries they have been forced to contend with this season. They continue to operate with a moderate pace of play to start games before being inevitably forced into an increased pace and aerial aggression as games move on due to routinely finding themselves in negative game script. Their 23rd ranked pace of play, with the score within 6 points and 6th ranked pace of play in the second half highlight this fact, while a pass rate over expectation value ranking 25th in the league and 21st ranked overall pass rate, 56.41%, back it up. Of note, DeAndre Swift has yet to return to full strength following ankle and shoulder injuries. Jamal Williams missed practice Wednesday with an illness. Josh Reynolds has yet to return from his extended absence due to a back injury. DJ Shark and Jamison Williams remain on the injured reserve. And fullback Jason Cabinda made his first appearance of the season last week following an extended absence. Last week, we saw that mess translate to the first real 21 personnel usage seen from the Lions this season, and increased 12 personnel rates compared to their season average. I would tentatively expect a similar outcome here, with the team moving more and more away from an offense based out of 11 personnel, at least until key pass catchers return. The backfield was a mess last week, with all of Jamal Williams, DeAndre Swift, Justin Jackson, and fullback Jason Cabinda seeing 21% or more of the offensive snaps, with no back surpassing a modest 40% snap rate. That basically translated to a three-headed timeshare at running back amongst Williams, Swift, and Jackson, and just over a 20% 21-personnel utilization. Williams saw 16 rush attempts and no targets. Swift saw nine combined running back opportunities. Jackson saw seven combined running back opportunities. And Williams and Swift split red zone work basically down the middle. Talk about a maddening situation. The pure rushing matchup yields a well above average 4.785 net adjusted line yards metric against a Giants defense holding opposing backfields to just 21.5 DK points per game, primarily due to a second-ranked 38.24% opponent red zone touchdown rate allowed, only six total touchdowns allowed to opposing backs through nine games played. Volume has come and gone for Jared Goff in the Lions' pass offense, but has mostly dried up over the previous five games. During that time, Goff has three games of exactly 26 pass attempts, one game of 35 attempts, and one game of 37 attempts. That's a far cry from earlier in the season when the Lions turned up the passing volume to a higher rate, with 34-41 to 41 attempts in each of the team's first four games. The opponent this week, the Giants, should combine with the Lions to leave each team with below NFL average total offensive plays run from scrimmage, which should serve to cap the range of outcomes of Goff's pass attempts. With Amon Ross St. Brown and Khalif Raymond playing just over 80% of the offensive snaps last week, with the team shifting focus to an offense more rooted in heavy sets, there is one player remaining that we can confidently project for consistent volume, Amon Ross St. Brown. Tom Kennedy and Trinity Benson filled in to combine for the team's wide receiver three role a week ago, but Benson finds himself on the injury report as a DNP on Wednesday with a knee injury. That should serve to further the likelihood of a heavy set-based offense this week. 
The Giants' 3-4-4-3 hybrid defense mixes and matches defensive personnel along their front to remain balanced and unpredictable, playing from man coverage at the highest rate in the league through 10 weeks. That has come through a consistent 40-50% to man coverage utilization with typical Wink Martindale elevated blitz rates, league-high 39.7%. That has translated to just league-average pressure rates providing a situation the Lions can potentially take advantage of when they do turn to the air. That said, Jared Goff, when blitzed, is not a pretty sight, as we've come to know over the previous three seasons. How New York Will Try to Win The plan remains clear and steadfast for the Giants. Do enough over the first three quarters to stay either in control or within striking distance during the final frame. Take this stat as an example. The Giants more than doubled the amount of time they have led by seven or more points in their last game against the Texans. That is pretty incredible for a team now sitting at 7-2 with the third best record in the NFC. New York holds the third lowest pass rate over expectation in the league, averaging only 26.7 pass attempts per game on a 46.37% overall pass rate. Their aggressive defense has done well in one of the most important metrics, red zone touchdown rate allowed, where they rank second in the league behind only the Broncos at 38.24%. This has allowed them to continue a run-based offense even with their defense ranking near the middle of the pack in defensive drive success rate allowed, points per drive allowed, and yards allowed per drive. So much of the Giants' offense filters directly through running back Saquon Barkley, but the low overall pass volume has left Barkley with decreased pass volume, to the point where we really should be considering him in the main clump of running backs this season that require 100 yards rushing and multiple scores in order to provide a GPP-worthy fantasy score. The thing is, the field still regards Saquon as if he were seeing 5-8 to eight targets as a floor, which is no longer the case. He carries the highest share of team opportunities in the league and has seen the highest rate of snaps and also leads the league in rushing while having his bye week already. But his fantasy points per opportunity rank a paltry 48th in the league, and his receiving volume has plummeted to just 3.2 receptions per game this season. Oh yeah, and he has the most breakaway runs this season with 14. As such, consider Saquon as we would Derrick Henry or Nick Chubb plus moving forward instead of the olden days David Johnson and LeVon Bell. Expect Matt Breida to back up Quan in a pure change of pace role. The matchup on the ground, remember, most important for Saquon's fantasy value moving forward, particularly considering the relatively poor run-blocking abilities of their offensive line, yields an above-average 4.495 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Lions defense allowing a robust 24.8 DK points per game to opposing backfields through nine games played. Assuming Saquon sees his standard 80% snap rate and opportunity share, he still requires efficiency and multiple touchdowns to return value at an inflated price of $8,900 on DraftKings. As in, it is unlikely he sinks you for not playing him in most weeks. A ridiculous nine wide receivers have seen meaningful snaps for the Giants this season, with the most recent bunch shaping up to be Darius Slayton, Wandale Robinson, Kenny Galladay, who played only 38% of the offensive snaps in his first game action since week four last week, and Isaiah Hodgins. Who? Yeah, exactly. Tight end Daniel Bellinger continues to sit out practice with his orbital bone injury that required surgery to address after being poked in the eye in week seven, leaving Chris Myarik, Tanner Hudson, and Lawrence Cager to divvy up the tight end snaps. 
which has effectively been 30 to 40% 12 personnel utilization offense through the uncertainties at wide receiver this team has been forced to endure. Four of quarterback Daniel Jones' previous six games have left him between 27 and 31 pass attempts, with the two outlier games going way under at 13 and 17 pass attempts, which again highlights the low emphasis on the passing game in this new-look offense. Considering the fact that the Giants should find success whichever ways they choose to attack the Lions, there is not a lot of certainty regarding the expected pass volume here. Likeliest Game Flow Wink Martindale and the Giants' defense is likely to make their presence known sooner rather than later here. The changing dynamics of the Detroit offense, primarily due to available personnel, is likely to lead to a Lions offensive game plan largely built around heavy personnel sets in an attempt to limit the damage from the aggressive Giants' defense. Expect a slow combined pace of play between these two, with the Lions likely to experience stalled drives and poor efficiency to start the game. That is likeliest to lead to a game environment that is poor for fantasy production, particularly amongst the secondary options on each team, which is basically everyone not named Saquon Barkley or Amon Ross St. Brown. Basically, there are very few paths to this game environment blowing up when you combine that with the standard narrative surrounding the Lions this season, a shootout waiting to happen, which could lead to overexposure from the field, a potential leverage point to consider in our decision-making matrix this week. The Raiders at the Broncos kick off Sunday, November 20th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.0. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Disappointment Bowl features a Raiders team that keeps losing close games and a Broncos team that is a mess on one side of the ball. These teams squared off in Week 4, with the Raiders winning a 32-23 game that was played in Las Vegas. Both offenses have lost multiple key offensive pieces since that first meeting. Denver has scored 20-plus points only once this season, while the Raiders have given up at least 20 points in every game. How Las Vegas Will Try to Win Perhaps this section would be more appropriately titled, How Las Vegas Will Find a Way to Lose. The Raiders have actually played pretty solid football this season, but have just been completely unable to close out games when they needed to. While the Raiders are currently 31st in the NFL in winning percentage, they are 22nd in point differential, and have had the ball with a chance to tie or win the game in the fourth quarter or overtime in six of their seven losses. That is not to make excuses for the Raiders, but rather to point out that while they currently have the second-worst record in the NFL, they are definitely not the second-worst team in the league. Josh Jacobs and Devontae Adams continue to be the dominant focus of the offense, which is down two of their top-skilled players with Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller on IR. Over the last two weeks, Adams and Jacobs have combined for an absurd 68% of the offense's usage, targets plus carries. We should expect much of the same this week, as the Raiders will likely run the ball with Jacobs early and often against a Broncos defense that is top three in most pass defense metrics while struggling at times against the run. Jacobs and tight end Foster Moreau will likely also see a decent amount of targets underneath. When throwing the ball, we should expect Devontae Adams to be the focal point as he has a 42% target share over the last two weeks. Broncos All-Pro cornerback Patrick Sertain will likely shadow Adams on his perimeter routes once again, as he did in the first meeting of these teams, although with Waller and Renfro out, we should expect a healthy amount of slot work for Adams as well. 
While Sertain is very good, the Raiders simply don't have enough other weapons to let him be a deterrent from throwing the ball to Adams. How Denver will try to win Nathaniel Hackett was quoted as saying this week that someone has to win this game. Based on what we've seen from Hackett this season, this makes me want to place a large wager on the game ending in a tie. The Broncos would have an 8-1 record this season if they had scored just 18 points in every game. But despite acquiring a supposed all-pro quarterback and an offensive-minded coach, they have reached that number only one time. The one thing that could inspire some offensive confidence for this week is the fact that the one game they did score more than 18 points was against the Raiders. Unfortunately for the Broncos, they won't have anywhere near the same cast of skill players this week that they had in that game. Early in the season, conservative pass rates and slow tempo were considered largely to blame for the Broncos' offensive issues. However, through nine games, the Broncos now have the NFL's 11th fastest situation neutral pace of play and are throwing the ball at nearly the exact rate that would be expected based on their game scripts. The issue has simply been lack of efficiency. The Broncos have also possibly been spoiled by the strength of their defense, which has given them a crutch to let them stay close in games despite their offensive ineptitude. For this week's game against the Raiders, we should first examine the likeliest method of attack and build our expectations from there. Coming off their Week 9 bye, the Broncos ran the ball with their running backs on only 18 plays as opposed to 55 combined passes, QB rushes, and sacks. This equates to a 75% pass rate despite the fact that the Broncos were leading or within one score for the entire game. The play-calling split, however, is something that lines up with the Broncos' current offensive personnel and the opponent they were facing, as the Titans have the top run defense in the league and the Broncos' running back room has been underwhelming, to say the least, since Javante Williams tore his ACL. For this week, the Broncos face a Raiders defense that is not very good against the run, but ranks dead last in pass defense DVOA. Considering how the Broncos approached last week and the failed state of their running game, it would make sense for them to once again lean heavily on their passing game in this matchup. And the Raiders are the only team that Wilson has thrown multiple touchdown passes against this season, and he threw for nearly 150 yards in the first half of that game. So there is some hope that he could have a relatively efficient game. Another issue for Wilson has been pocket awareness and dealing with pressure, an issue which should be better against a Raiders defense that has only two sacks in their last four games. Likeliest Game Flow This game is likely to be close and competitive throughout, as was the case in the first matchup between these teams when the game was within one score until the Raiders went up by nine with just over two minutes remaining. The issue for both teams has been winning those close games, as 11 of the 13 combined losses for these teams have been by one score. The Broncos' defense has not given up more than 10 points in the first half of a home game this season, and is only giving up 6.5 points per first half across those four home games. This, along with the slow pace and recent struggles of the Raiders' offense, makes it unlikely that Las Vegas would take an early control of this game. On the flip side, the Broncos' offensive struggles makes them hard to trust, but given their likely pass-heavy approach and the mistake-prone nature of the Raiders' secondary, it would seem likeliest that they would be the team to take control of the game. However, even in that scenario, Wilson's conservative play and Hackett's conservative play calling would likely keep the Broncos from truly pulling away and forcing the Raiders out of their comfort zone prior to the fourth quarter. A competitive but ugly game that is played slowly and ends with a score somewhere in the range of 19-14 to 24-20 to seems very likely.
Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Cowboys at the Vikings kick off Sunday, November 20th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Game of the Week on the main slate this should live up to the billing. The Dallas defense looks better in most season-long metrics than how they have performed recently. Likewise, the Dallas offense is rounding into form as they get healthy in the passing game and turn the running game over to Tony Pollard. The combination of explosive players on both sides of the ball and defenses that have shown the tendency to get burned give this game massive upside. How Dallas will try to win the Cowboys' offense has shifted into high gear since the return of Dak Prescott, averaging 34.7 points in their last three games after averaging only 21.4 points in his absence. This week, they face an inconsistent Minnesota defense that ranks fifth worst in the league in yards per play allowed, one of the more predictive metrics we can find. The Cowboys' passing offense continues to get healthier and more in sync while the Vikings' pass defense has given up 300-plus passing yards in three of the last four weeks, the one exception being against Taylor Heineke and the Commanders. The Cowboys rank 26th on the season in pass rate at 54.2%, driven primarily by Dak Prescott's five-week absence. Since his return, the Cowboys had an easy win over the Lions, a highly efficient passing performance against the Bears, and a pass-heavy game against the Packers. Looking at how the Cowboys will approach this game, they are likely to be aware of the need to score a healthy amount of points in this matchup to win due to their defense's recent struggles and the prowess of the Minnesota offense. If Ezekiel Elliott is active, it will allow the Cowboys to lean on their running game more, as they will have two highly trusted running backs to rely on. On paper, the Vikings' pass defense is worse than their run defense, but they are by no means a scary unit against the run. Expect a game plan built first around their running game, which sets up their passing concepts and allows them to attack the intermediate and deep areas of the field. Now that their receiving core is fully healthy, they can move C.D. Lamb around the field more, and Dalton Schultz has returned to a high-usage role as Dak Prescott's security blanket. Expect an efficient performance from the Cowboys as they play at their usual fast pace and attack a defense that has been bailed out by their offense on multiple occasions this season. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings' offense is starting to come together and have some clarity. Dalvin Cook, Justin Jefferson, and TJ Hawkinson are the focal points of the offense, with most of the work flowing through them. In the passing game over the last two weeks, since TJ Hawkinson was acquired, Hawkinson and Justin Jefferson have combined for 53% of the team's targets. The acquisition of Hawkinson has also opened some things up, as Jefferson has seen far more intermediate and deep targets than he had previously. Dalvin Cook has taken complete control of the backfield, playing over 80% of the snaps in four consecutive games and handling 86% of the running back opportunities, carries plus targets during that time. Now that Minnesota has Cook playing almost all of the running back snaps and a true full-time tight end in Hawkinson, the Vikings personnel is the same on nearly all of their snaps, with wide receivers Adam Thielen and K.J. Osborne playing roughly 90 and 80% of the offensive snaps, respectively. 
This 11 personnel with very few substitutions is very reminiscent of the Rams' offense of recent years, where head coach Kevin O'Connell was the offensive coordinator prior to this season. The Vikings are 6th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation and 7th in situation neutral pace of play, as O'Connell has held true to his word of opening up the Vikings' offense. Minnesota is averaging 28.5 points per game at home and has scored 20-plus points in every game this season except a Week 2 disaster in Philadelphia. This week, they match up with a Dallas defense that has some good metrics but has struggled recently. After holding their first five opponents under 20 points, the Cowboys have given up 26 or more points in three of their last four games, the one exception being a home game against the Lions, who had several key offensive injuries. In all three of those games where the Cowboys' defense struggled, their opponent ran the ball on 60% or more of their offensive plays. Part of that reality has likely been driven by who those opponents were, however, as the Eagles and Bears build their offenses around their dual-threat QBs and multi-headed backfields, and the Packers also rely heavily on their running game to carry them. For the Vikings, we should expect a slightly more run-heavy game plan than usual, but they are unlikely to run the ball at a rate anywhere close to what those other teams did. We should also note that the Packers' passing game broke out of its funk with three touchdown passes from Aaron Rodgers to Christian Watson, which shows us that the Vikings' very talented passing game can also succeed in this matchup. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams play at fast tempos, third and seventh fastest in the league, and have relatively consistent and efficient offenses. There are no weather concerns or offensive injuries that should hamper performance, making it likely that this game starts out with both teams being able to move the ball relatively well, and both teams recognizing that their opponent isn't going to be held down completely, so they will need to aggressively pursue points early in the game. The worst thing for the Vikings would be to fall significantly behind and become predictable for the Cowboys' pass rush to pin their ears back and attack. The same can be said for the Cowboys, whose offensive strength lies in their balanced attack that keeps defenses guessing. Falling behind and becoming more predictable will only serve to make them less efficient. What we should expect here is early offensive success on both sides, with sustained drives that lead to points. Ultimately, the flow of this game will likely be determined by which team is most successful in turning those drives into touchdowns. While both offenses rank well in red zone touchdown scoring, Dallas 7th and Minnesota 11th, the Dallas defense has been much stronger at slowing down opponents in that area, ranking 11th in opponent red zone touchdown percentage as opposed to Minnesota's 31st ranked defense in the same category. Considering that, Dallas seems like the team more likely to take control early in the game, but Minnesota's offense is strong enough to stay within striking distance. The explosiveness of both offenses and the vulnerabilities of both defenses make this game likely to feature a lot of scoring and live up to its billing as the top-scoring environment on the main slate. The one concern would be if the Vikings lean heavily on the running game to expose the Cowboys, and the Cowboys also lean heavily on the run as a way to try and protect their defense. In that scenario, there would likely be fewer explosive plays, and the clock would be continuously running which would limit possessions and scoring opportunities. The Bengals at the Steelers kick off Sunday, November 20th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This is a rematch of a Week 1 game that the Steelers won on the back of their defense and Cincinnati turnovers. 
After failing to score 30 points in their first five games, the Bengals have scored 30-plus in three of their last four games. The Steelers have not scored over 20 offensive points in a game this season. Both teams play at a league-average tempo and throw the ball at an above-average rate, with Cincinnati doing so in a much more efficient manner. How Cincinnati will try to win The Bengals have played two games without Jamar Chase. In those games, they had one game against the Browns where they looked completely lost and had their worst offensive performance of the season. In the other game, they absolutely stomped the Panthers while using Joe Mixon as a true offensive centerpiece, as he had a monster game in the box score. While Mixon's career day was partially caused by the Bengals turning more to their running game after their ugly performance in Cleveland, the reality is that they threw the ball on eight of their first 12 offensive plays, and their success on the ground had more to do with the final play-calling split than a giant philosophy shift. It is important to understand the context of that Week 9 game before the Bengals' bye week because this week they face a Steelers defense that has struggled significantly against high-octane passing offenses, giving up eight touchdown passes and over 700 passing yards combined to the Bills and Eagles, while ranking top 10 in the league by almost any metric. Joe Burrow also threw for 340 yards in the first meeting between these teams. The issue was just keeping him upright, as the Steelers had seven sacks in that game. The Bengals' offensive line is still not very good, but they have improved since that season-opening loss. I would expect the Bengals to try to strike quickly in this game to take some air out of the Steelers' defense and put some pressure on their offense to open things up for Kenny Pickett, hoping that leads to mistakes and a bigger lead. The Bengals are third in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, but that number is skewed for this week due to the absence of Chase. We should expect a more balanced attack from Cincinnati, like we saw in Week 9, with the potential for more of Mixon's usage to be through the passing game, if when the Steelers load the box. The Steelers' defense has also struggled historically against slot-wide receivers and occasionally tight ends, making Hayden Hurst and Tyler Board candidates for busy days. Finally, we've seen big-bodied downfield receivers do a lot of damage against the Steelers, and we could see T. Higgins be a true alpha receiver for the first time since Chase left the lineup. The Steelers' defense is solid and will likely give them a good test, but I expect the Bengals to make a concerted effort to jump out on top and let their momentum carry them to another big win. How Pittsburgh Will Try to Win The Bengals' defense has been solid this season, allowing over 21 points only twice this season, and the Steelers' offense has yet to reach 21 points in a game through 10 weeks. While the Steelers had some success in Week 9 and actually ran the ball well for once, they are still far from an efficient unit. The Steelers rank 31st in the league in yards per play and 28th in red zone touchdown scoring percentage. What this tells us is that the Steelers are inefficient at moving the ball, And on the rare occasion where they get into scoring position, they are very bad at converting drives into points. Adding to their struggles is the fact that they have not scored a touchdown from outside the 10-yard line this season. Not a great recipe for offensive success. The hope for the Steelers lies primarily on the shoulders of Kenny Pickett and the potential that he makes a leap in the second half of the season. The trade of Chase Claypool left the Steelers with a clear big three in their receiving core of Deontay Johnson, George Pickens, and Pat Fryermuth. Pickett had some very errant throws last week against the Saints and continues to struggle with decision-making. 
Pickett has yet to average seven yards per pass attempt in a start this season and has thrown only two touchdowns as opposed to eight interceptions. The Steelers' rushing game did show some signs of life last week, as the team rushed for 217 yards, which was by far their most of the season. They had previously not rushed for over 150 yards in a game. This was achieved through a combination of running backs Najee Harris and Jalen Warren, a couple of reverses for George Pickens, and some scrambles from Pickett. The expectation for the Steelers should be that they once again rely heavily on their ground game and play at a modest pace in an effort to let their defense keep them in it and or win the game for them like they did in week one against the Bengals. Pickett's extra use of his legs is likely to continue as well. He has averaged 7.5 rushes over his last two games after running only six total times in his first three starts. The Bengals' secondary is without its top cornerback which makes perimeter matchup for the Steelers a little more beatable. But when the Steelers do throw, I would expect a lot of short and intermediate targets, as well as some screens to running backs, an area the Bengals have struggled with in the past. Likeliest Game Flow Much of this game comes down to whether or not the Bengals' offensive line is up to the task of protecting Joe Burrow this time around. In the first matchup, they were absolutely embarrassed, and the dominance in that area by the Steelers was by far the biggest factor in the outcome of that game. Even without Jamar Chase, if the Bengals can protect Burrow, they should be able to put up some points. Given the context of the Steelers' offense and emergence of two viable running backs, the Steelers are not going to push the pace and have not shown the ability to generate explosive plays or finish off drives with touchdowns consistently which tells us that a game where the Steelers are competitive is most likely to be a low-scoring affair. The likeliest scenario has the Steelers keeping the Bengals' offense in check without Chase there to provide explosive plays and the Steelers keeping things relatively close but never truly threatening late. I would also note that the Bengals have had a bit of a chip on their shoulder, particularly in divisional games over the last couple of years, and will keep their foot on the gas deep into the game in revenge-type spots against teams who previously beat them. See Week 16, 2021 against the Ravens. An outcome like that isn't necessarily likely, but if the Bengals are able to build a big lead, I could see them stepping on the gas late, considering how embarrassing that Week 1 performance was.